Hello and welcome to Living Wow Feminist. Living Wow Feminist is a weekly podcast talking with feminists about the ups and downs, ins and outs, and the emotional rollercoaster ride of living a feminist life. I'm your host, feminist writer, researcher, and author, Jen Thorpe. Today on the podcast, I'm lucky enough to be speaking to one of the 50 most powerful women in South Africa, Carla Watson. Feminist activator and strategic rock star, Carla Watson thrives in collaborative spaces to strategically shape the future of the marginalized and often overlooked. She was recognized as one of the top 200 South Africans in 2019 for her contribution in education. And at just 31 years old, she has just been recognized in 2020 as one of the 50 most powerful women in the country by the Mail and Guardian. Carla is the head of the Jakes Harwell Graduate Teaching Fellowship, which is focused on supporting and nurturing young people into high-impact high school teachers. Education and inclusivity are the pillars of her life's work and vision, and she strategically connects with individuals and organizations which resonate with these goals. She is also the founder of For You and Yours, an organization focused on increasing visibility of the LGBTIQ community and people of color through greeting cards. Carla's piece in Living While Feminist is called Scab, and in that piece she says, I'm afraid of carrying the struggle, the struggle to either heal my pain or let it blind any glimpse of restorative justice in my country. I'm afraid the very healing I work so hard for will mutate into justified anger, pain, revenge. How do I untangle all that I feel and experience every fucking day in South Africa while remaining shackled to the responsibility of not flipping the fuck out and trending on Twitter? Something I think many of us will relate to. So today I'm going to be talking with Carla about representation, inclusivity and healing. Welcome, Carla. Thank you, Jen. That's a very wonderful introduction. Oh, it was easy since you've done so much very wonderful stuff. Um, so we'll start with your piece. I do want to get onto some of your professional work and all of these fantastic accolades. But since we are talking about Living While Feminist, your piece in Living While Feminist begins with you reading a chapter of Haji Muhammad Dauji's collection of personal essays, Sorry Not Sorry. And as you read it, the word scab flashes into your mind. Can you tell me why the word scab and why you were initially a bit afraid to read that book? Thanks, Jen. That's a, that's a very good question. Uh, I'll start with the second one first, which was why I was afraid to read it. Um, it was a gift from my partner, and she had read it before me. And she's wonderful in the sense that she wanted to work with the text quite intimately before, you know, passing it on to me. And after I heard a little bit about her reflections, carefully, of course, not telling me anything you know, actually what was in the book, I realized that it was likely this text would evoke some sense of awakening in me. And it's an interesting thing as being a person of color and, and being on various stages of your self-actualization, either through your race or your sexuality or just whichever space you take up in the world. Um, it is both, a, I guess, a blessing and a curse to face yourself and, and to see yourself through yourself and not through the eyes or a white lens, as, as I talk about in the piece. So I was a bit nervous and afraid to read it. And I guess my, my fears were actually quite correct. I remember reading the first chapter and then being unable to sleep thereafter. After the second chapter, I realized I'd worked the next day and I had to um, stop myself from, from almost immersing myself in, in a narrative of where I saw who I was and, and in all my glory, so to speak. Um, and 
what I did was, as I realized that this book was going to be quite integral in my development as a person, I started writing reflections at the each at the end of each chapter just to document or capture what was bubbling up from from quite beautifully but very insightful written words from from Haji. Um, and that's what what uh, those reflections largely made up my contribution to living while feminist. Um, the rawness of it, the pain, the anger is not something that I can articulate after the fact, but rather when it's fresh and visceral. And I, I titled it Scab. Funny story, I guess, um, is from at the height of apartheid. My parents were teaching at Bointeville High in Cape Town. It's a, it's a school out um, in Bointeville. And they'd mentioned a concept of being called a scab if you were in any shape or form trying to be white. And it's a political statement, which um, is very dated, but it's the concept is, is that it was a negative term to describe anyone who was trying to increase their social mobility or social class or any sort of progress in a time of struggle and pain, particularly politically. So when I wrote this piece, I felt a number of feelings <laughs> and uh, I went through so many different roller coaster experiences. But what shouted at me, screamed at me, was almost breaking through my feelings of being a scab based on that definition, almost breaking through and, and, and peeking through what is okay in terms of social mobility and social class changes and actually looking towards progress versus struggle. And... Uh, yeah, I guess I guess that's my my reasoning for the title. Sometimes I wonder, Jen, to be honest, how how likely I would name it that again if I had to write it now, you know, after going through this process. Um, but but at the time, it made the most political and 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 historical resonance for for the content that I wrote. Just there's such a lot going on there in your answer around history and around how do we translate sort of this rainbow nation, constitutional, and sometimes very woo-woo goal into like the real life of actually healing pain and suffering and letting go of these problematic norms of what success and goodness and value looks like in our country, which is very fragmented. Um, your piece also asks a question of responsibility, whose responsibility is it to heal and redress the past and perform in certain ways for acceptability and to bring up and remind people of historical oppression? And I wonder if since writing your piece, you feel any different about this question and whether you have a sense of the answer at all. I swear, if I had the answer, I would bottle it and share it with everyone. Um, to be honest, it's it's quite a, 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 a big part of me, this concept around responsibility in, in social change. And, and I guess in simpler, in simpler language, I am cross at many things and I am upset about, um, from a personal perspective, realizing the greatness of my color and the greatness of, my, of who I am very late into my, um, into my journey. And I find in my journey and experience of the world. So I resist, <laughs> I resist the Twitter activism and I resist not being able or not implementing or contributing to a healing approach towards the pain that we have in the country now it sounds very high level I, I as i'm speaking i can hear that but but and i'm going to try and articulate a deep life philosophy here on this podcast um but but i believe that for for long lasting sustainable change we have to enter conflict and difficulty with a solution in mind or a resolution rather 
and the responsibility of, of achieving that, that, that resolution and, and not harmony, but the coming togetherness within difference is primarily everyone's responsibility. I kind of want to be an angry black woman and, and hate white people and set something alight just to demonstrate my anger, which is a perfectly healthy way to, to express that. But I, I don't see, I don't see the, the resolution in mind with an approach like that. So I work really hard to maintain how can I restore a relationship or how can I restore an opinion or attitude rather than being quite polarized. And I'm observing in, in our South African society and, of course, globally, there's, uh, there's this polarization of thought or identity or even any sense of definition that, for me, builds silos in a society, particularly in South Africa, where we've been siloed for long enough, for, for too long, one day is too long. And it's done such damage to people's sense of self-worth, their people's sense of, of progress, people's sense of success, that, that I, I actively go into spaces with, yes, I'm cross, yes, I'm angry. However, how can I use that anger or that discomfort to, to bring people together or bring some sense of resolution to the conflict? My, my activist style, though, Jen, is, is less public. I'm, I'm deeply private and, and much more of an introvert, despite what it appears. Um, so I, I tend to... to Outside of my work, of course, I tend to build these cohesive relationships through conversation or when something topical comes up, as most recently with the clicks adverts, I, I try and see the, the situation for what it is, feel my anger, but then redirect that into a way of resolution. And perhaps, I guess, fairness in a way that includes difference, but also allows for, for a bit of change. And it's, it's not easy. Um, yeah, it's not easy. And, and I think the easier route would be um, to choose a, a polarized view on things. I think it would be much easier to be completely angry at homophobia, completely, uh, almost, almost, I guess, uh, a bigot in, in your own right, if, you, if you're anti-homophobia, that sort of conversation, or anti-white, or anti-anything anti that seems to be challenging to who I am. But, but I choose the harder route only because I think it's more sustainable. And I think more people should be focus on resolving issues rather than just simply being angry at that. Anger is useful and it, you have to push through your anger to, to, to become a bit more uh, helpful in my sense in that situation. Yeah, I think there's such value in feeling your anger first though. And it is, I think, really important that people do get an opportunity to feel your anger because the piece that you wrote reminded me a lot of a piece in the Feminism Is Collection, which was written by Larissa Klesinger, who's an um, anti-sexual violence activist. And in that piece, she was speaking about how she's constantly being asked why she's so angry. Can't she just get along and be a bit you know, more nice? And she was like, this is me keeping my anger con under control. This is me <laughs> trying to police my anger. Your piece also reinforced for me this idea that oppressed groups, whether it's their race or gender or class or sexual orientation or nationality, often feel, like you said, justified, legitimate anger about the way that they've been treated in the past or in the present, but are discouraged from expressing this lest they lose the space to participate in the conversation. So what do you think the impact is then of not having space to reflect anger of not being able to express anger productively, I suppose, rather than in this polarized way that you're describing? Do you think there's still an importance in raising what we're angry about? So I would, I would clarify your point with the language around restorative approach um, to, to, to anger. So, and, and, and I'll unpack that in a bit. So I firmly believe that anger is always welcome at any table that I sit at. Irritation, 
disgust, all the, 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 what we often are taught to bury from a very young age, those feelings that are often not affirmed or, or validated, is always welcome in my home and at my table and in any conversation. I believe that, that anger is useful and, and, and it's, it's, there's, a, there's a sense of clarity when you're really pissed off. Whether you're pissed off at the teller or whether you're pissed off at generations of inequality, if you're truly that passionate about it, the world seems quite clear according to what you what you feel. And I guess as a personal anecdote, when I was perhaps slightly too irritated with my, my classes when I was a teacher, it would be so clear to me what I needed to, to feel and express in that moment. Um, um, whether, you know, positive or negative is besides the point, but anger gives you that platform for absolute clarity. However, and this is where I think the impact of not having those spaces to express anger uh, can be quite negative, is in that if you deny yourself a very natural feeling of, of, of irritation, disgust, anger, it is likely to then uh, bubble and come out in another way. So energy, in my opinion, moves through a way that it has to go somewhere. You can't switch it off. You can't bury it. You can't. It'll come out some way, manifest, I guess, in some way or other. And that's where I guess the harm comes from for not using anger quite um, restoratively. So if I go back a second to what I think your question was pointing to was what happens when someone feels that they can't express themselves with a justified uh, a feeling or natural feeling as this? And that's when I say I think it will manifest in, in other ways. And I would encourage people to, to, be, to, to learn a language of self-love, I guess, for the, the darker sides of themselves, of where anger and irritation come from in a way that will then push them towards and the people around them towards moving through it, not trying to hide it, not trying to get over it or just be cool or can't you just participate, but rather moving through it so that it fuels yourself into making a more practical, I guess, systemic, positive impact. I think what you've said there around the importance of feeling your feelings and understanding what they're about and how you can use them productively is so important in feminist activism. And I think another point that you make in your piece, which people will relate to and I think can be better understood through reading your piece, is this idea of um, wanting to be validated or affirmed. Um, but you also speak of a sort of grief that comes with letting go of that desire to be validated by other people or letting go perhaps of the commitment to performing in a way that makes everybody else comfortable. So you say, now I'm closer to my freedom and I don't like it. Knowing I am free feels like a lonely responsibility to carry. Since I know it now, I'm charged to behave freely. Why do you think this letting go of the commitment to performing for other people's expectations and comfort feels so lonely? You know, I'm listening to read my work, Jen, and I'm like, did I write that? <laughs> it's just, yeah, I did. I have a sense that that society and people, because perhaps we can even distinguish those, follow an, a subconscious or in, invisible handbook. So when you get married, possibly, the next question is, are you going to buy a house if you're of that class? Or are you going to have kids if you're of that generation? Whichever. And particularly with heterosexual people and, and you know, your cis white um, demographic often follow this invisible handbook that, that, that they just kind of get on with the world quite easily. There's very little conflict. There's very little discomfort. There's very little um, opportunities to be anger, angry. So and I don't put this only, you know, in, in the white as a race in the white domain, but really anybody that follows a set of rituals and traditions 
kind of allows them to to not have to question or be uncomfortable. And my sense is is that is that once I'd you know read through Haji's work and had this visceral experience and committed to myself about some of the things that intentionally or rather unintentionally kept myself you know unaware of or from a safety perspective, I found that that freedom is overwhelming. Once you see yourself in all your glory or you see yourself for what you are, which is not always a pleasant experience, you are, you embark on a journey that no one else can connect with, number one. There's no invisible handbook for you to follow. There's no sets of rituals or traditions that can kind of just calm that quiet voice at night about what am I doing and does it make sense? And instead, you, you kind of, not even on the road less traveled, it's never been traveled before because it's your path. And, and I found myself really scared. And I'm still scared. Again, I think it's a healthy feeling. I, I'm nervous at, at what, at what, you know, where I'm going and what does my, my opinion and, and influence in this space have, not only for myself, but for my community or, or any community. And I think it's healthy, no matter how many things you might do or how many, you know, ladders you might climb. But I think it's really healthy to keep a sense of, of fear. And again, it comes back to that natural, very helpful feeling of I'm not sure and I'm okay that I'm not sure about what's going on. And that's that's quite a lonely experience in the sense that you are no longer looking for affirmation or less, you're less likely to look for affirmation externally, but rather look internally for, for your, your guidance. And, you know, there's the aspects of religion or, or culture that, that can, can help this process um, or hinder it, again, both goes both ways. But, but or can influence rather. But but in my case, I, I take a strong direction from from the rules that I write for myself as best as I can, and have very little patience for someone else trying to give me a set of rules or criteria to complete because it's the social activist in me gets so fatigued by just thinking about what those rules are that I just go, no, this is too much. I'm just going to make my own and hope for the best. And that's that's I guess a bit of an entrepreneurial mindset. It's it's where you you work towards your own self assurance and your own validation processes. And I'd like to think that my 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 journey is with a positive, um, uh, intentionally positive approach. Again, this can also go the other way for anyone. But but I find that my anger, as I expressed in the previous in response to the previous prompt and in my writing, is helpful in keeping that clarity. Is helpful in remembering your why. It's helpful in remaining focus on what it is that irritates you, makes you cross and, and, and still keeps you kind in a way that, that can have me, in this case, continue my journey of, of self-commitment and, and self-validation. And it's, I'm unlearning <laughs> 30 years, 31 years of, of a learned behavior. I'm unlearning an internal dialogue. I'm unlearning previous commitments of, or currencies of success, whether it be education or promotions or what house you live in, whichever. And I'm, un, I'm in a process of unlearning, and I don't think it will ever end. I don't think it ever should end, actually, because constantly questioning your own biases or, or values or what you see success to be like in your life demands a level of self-affirmation. And in my case, as I've articulated it, a sense of loneliness, which is, uh, I see it as it is what it is rather than anything with a value judgment. And how do you feel about your piece now that it's published? I mean, you mentioned earlier that you maybe wouldn't have called it scab. So ha have your feelings changed in relation to that moment? And have you had any reactions to your piece from friends or family? And what have they been like? Well, I tend to live a life of, um, I fully commit. Once you, you have my attention, you have all of me. 
So the experience with Haji's book and, and my own integral, I guess, unlearning process after the words that you put on a page very beautifully, I fully committed to that process. And the work and, and the, the piece I submitted for Living While Feminist was an expression of that full commitment. And because I'm, I, I tend to be quite, uh, I oscillate between a, a future-orientated approach and still very much living in the present, I don't very much look back as, as, as often as I guess other people might. So my feelings towards this piece is that I completely trust previous caller. I completely trust and stand right next to anything she wrote or said or felt in that moment. And I wouldn't change any of it because I feel it is a it is an accurate snapshot of, of a moment of my own journey of unlearning and, and committing to myself. So I wouldn't go back and change it. I would uh, not even change the title. And I believe that that it's important to cement yourself in your spaces that you that you occupy when you're feeling that that clear or that 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 motivated or angry or, or justified in, the, in those moments. And I guess this is one of the challenges with my academic writing is because once I've cemented to it, I don't want to go back, but all you have to do is edit and then I have to go back and look at it again. So I guess that's my, my answer to your first point around about, you know, would I change the name or change anything about it? In terms of its reception, I um, have experienced a very uncomfortable feeling of praise. So again, historically, person of color, queer, whatever, you can attach whatever label to it. But praise is a, or affirmation externally is quite a, again, <laughs> maybe I'm just uncomfortable with everything, but I find it quite uh, um, overwhelming in a way to have that much of attention. So the, the response has been incredibly positive. Um, while I'm on this podcast, I'm going to just mention that my mother still needs to buy the book. So maybe, you know, that will shake some things up there. But in terms of my, my, my wider family and friends, it's been such an affirming process not to be published, not to be, you know, in this prestigious collection of work, but rather that you read my work and you, you see me because I was previous caller and current caller feels these feelings and, and, and commits to it and is cross. And it comes out very strongly in the writing. And to have uh, close people to me receive that and say, you know what, I may not understand it, but I, but I love you or I, I agree with your passion. For me, that's enough. That's resolution. That's moving towards a common understanding and being able to just simply see each other. And, and as I'm articulating this, I guess the golden thread in a lot of work that I do is representation. And, and I find that to be integral in, in the self-actualization of anyone. That's so beautiful. I'm so glad that it was an opportunity to have yourself seen and heard and supported in this process. I feel very um, whew, moved by that. Um, as I mentioned in your bio, you are not only this cross, <laughs> sometimes essayist, you are also recognized by the Mail and Guardian last year as one of the top 200 young South Africans for your work in education. And then this year as one of the 50 most powerful women in South Africa, two incredible accolades that I hope, even though you're uncomfortable with praise, that you've taken the time to absorb them and to celebrate them. Can you tell me a little bit about your work in education and what these awards mean for you? Oh, what a wonderful question. Thank you. I um, A little bit of a backstory, I guess, is that because I work in development, often your metrics of success is very hard to acknowledge. Uh, you know, scale, scale, impact, impact. And it's very hard to, to internalize any sort of level of progress or, or impact. And, and I... Um, I guess the, the, the ego side of me, because we all have an ego, but, you know, I'd like to acknowledge it, enjoys getting these accolades as a reminder 
of the work that I do and the impact that I've got because it's likely people in development don't often look at themselves, which is, of course, why the, the rate of burnout is so high for many reasons, but I guess that's one of them. And getting these accolades, Jen, have have thrown me, keeps me nervous, <laughs> keeps me a little bit afraid, and you know I like that. But but what one of the biggest things it gives me, and 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 as as I guess typical to my nature is I receive it, I celebrate it, and then I want to share it immediately. Is that as a teacher in a local high school, and as and as a um, as a, I guess an educationist now at the Jake's Cable Fellowship. What I stand for and, 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 and what I get praised or recognized for goes much further than only in my own life's legacy. So I'm not a very good social media person. I will like, maybe share, but if you see a status from me, it's quite, it's quite rare. Um, I most likely am just sending a GIF. And, and what I did was with this most recent one was I, I put it on my Facebook. Uh, and and I, I put it on there and I said, you know, last year, what, what, this year, this. And I, and I repeated my commitments to my, my, my life legacy in terms of improving education in the country and representation. And there was a particular response from one of my old students. I mean, it lit up, right? That's what social media does. A hundred likes, whatever, it makes tickling, endorphins, ding, ding, ding. But then there was this particular post that said something along the lines of, um, I never imagined that my, my old English teacher would have had uh, uh, received an award like this. And, and I can't believe that that same person is who taught me for a number of years. And I, I, I screenshot it and I sent it to my friend Anine and I said, this is why I put it on social media, because it's not for, it's not for me to hold. It's not for mine to go up on, the, on my, my, my certificate on the wall in my parents' house or whatever. It really is something that you need to use to remind people of their own their own possibility. And like I say, this is a very, or not like I say, I, I, I think I mentioned it earlier around this, the, the book I found quite integral to my self-actualization, Haji's book. And this is really part of a bigger journey that instead of just holding on to it, I'm saying, okay, I can do these things and I'm going to put myself out there, you know, apply for these accolades or ask to be nominated, which is such a scary process, but it is what it is. Um, and then when, when it works out, you know, it's, it's, it's something that needs to be shared. It's something that, that people from your past, your present need to engage with and put a smile on their face and say, hey, maybe, maybe I could do something like that. And that's restorative justice in my mind. That is, that is going in there with, a, with an idea, with an approach, and then sharing it, not democratizing it, but bringing it to a, an equally, equal uh, leveling playing field and, and saying, you know what, this is me, great, but it could also really be you. And, and I've done that. I've, you know, I've shared the link and then I say, well, next time it comes out, I will nominate you. Or what do you want to study? Let's how, we, how can we get you there? And that's beyond like the normal work responsibilities. So in terms of my role in education, I um, believe in representation and I believe it's so important to see people like yourself in positions of power and influence. And I guess I'm slowly going into that space of, of being someone like that, a queer woman of color who's saying, yeah, I am, and and kind of just moving with it, um, and and there's something that's very special about sharing your life legacy with people in your in your community that is integral to who they are. It can be integral to who they are. Yeah, I think sometimes teachers feel very proud of their students, but you don't realize that your students often feel very proud of you and of being of having had the opportunity to be around you. My maths teacher from high school recently got made principal of my high school. And I felt this like huge rush of, you know, connection to this person and thinking, wow, like she's come such a long way since she was my teacher all those years ago. And she was such an incredible teacher. And it felt so wonderful to see her rewarded and noticed and to see her success. 
you know, people do inspire beyond the moment that you meet them, that your inspiration can last a very long time. So you work as the head of a fellowship, which is named after one of South Africa's most prominent anti-apartheid activists and academics, Professor Jake Scherrell. The fellowship supports aspiring teachers with a passion for education and development and who wish to contribute to society. Can you tell us a little bit about how long the fellowship has been running and what its aims are and what's been the most exciting thing that you've seen come out of it? Cool. So um, I love where I work. Firstly, I love the, the the impact that we are planning or working towards and the people that I work with, and I love the vision. So sometimes we make internal jokes about who, who's had the most Kool-Aid today in order to push out some work, um, and often my hand goes up, and that's fine. But what, what the fellowship aims to do, so we started in 2017, there was a specific question there, founded it in 2017, I was part of the founding team. And, and the vision was to find the best and brightest young people who want to become teachers. And this is quite an unpopular narrative, which we are actively working to deconstruct um, in terms of positioning teaching as an aspirational career. And we have done a fair amount of work quite quickly in the last three, three or so years. Um, we have 70 students on the program who are all completing undergraduate degrees and then will go on to do their PGCE next year. The part of the, the program that I head up is called the Graduate Teaching Fellowship, where we are taking in under 30-year-olds um, who already have a degree. So there are two intakes um, for us to honor uh, Prof. Kerval's Prof. Um, legacy. And, and the vision of it is, is that quite simply centered around a, a simple question that I've brought into many boardrooms and, and, and high-level conversations, which are, who was your favorite teacher and why? And, and Jen, I would have asked you that, but you already answered it a little bit earlier. And, and the reason for that question is because no matter how old you are or where you're at, or does, despite anything, you, there's a picture and a name that pops up into your head for whatever reason. They used to greet me every day. They gave me nice marks or they, they smelt nice, whichever. Schooling is such an integral part of the socialization of a person and their introduction or exit of, of, of a community that who your favorite teacher is or your, le- your least favorite teacher is a, is a prompt that, that elicits just the impact of, of having a high quality teacher. Not only someone with strong subject content knowledge, but someone who, who has a deep sense of who they are and, and why they do what they do. So we, we see the classroom as the, the, the major vehicle for change in education in South Africa, but also acknowledge that these wonderful people we have in the program and other teachers often carry a lot more potential beyond the classroom. So our model is, Become qualify as a teacher, that's great. Teach for two years, uh, that's even better. And if you feel that the classroom is where you want to thrive, then hang out there, follow the leadership track if you want to, do whatever you need to do, but influence that space with all of you. If you feel that you have more of an entrepreneurial approach, we support the second pathway to impact, which is um, following an educational entrepreneurial uh, business venture to solve a particular problem. And the third uh, pathway to impact that we encourage our, our students to consider is the on educational leader. And it's intentionally all vague because we can't quite peg a particular pathway to a particular person. We accept that they have a passion that needs to be nurtured. And that's what the program works to, to accomplish. So we take them through strong leadership and, and personal development programs. There's a lot of coaching. There's a lot of, um, of, of, of tools to help them develop a language of self-description or beyond academics and passing you know their undergrad and going on to do pgce 
because often our best teachers are the ones who have a little bit more self-assurance around what it is that they're doing and then can put themselves out of the process and guide the student entirely. Often our, our less great teachers are sometimes too focused on themselves in those classrooms. And it's not necessarily a bad thing, but just it's not as helpful as it could be if they were able to just shift slightly to the left and allow and allow the, the students or the learning or the or the societal needs of your classroom to to, to shine. So that's some of the that's I guess one aspect of the work that we do. But it's all under within underneath this the strong advocacy for the teaching career as an aspirational one as one that will affect uh, long-term change um, in, in our spaces. And it's a bit challenging to chat to a millennial around this, this vision, you know, this long-term impact vision. Um, and that's one of our challenges, of course. But when you deconstruct it into a vernacular of a millennial or a vernacular of, uh, of someone a bit more closer to the present than, than I am, um, it's, it's such a two-way learning process that's great that constantly iterates and improves our program as we, as we progress each year. It's so amazing to support teachers because I think you're right, they they really can change your life, even if it's just acknowledging that you're facing a bit of a tough time. And I think many of our teachers, as we've seen in COVID now with what's been going on with whether people should or shouldn't go back to school, are essential workers in their community, not just at the school, but in the community building, in keeping kids safe, in changing people's norms about themselves. And I know our education system faces a lot of challenges, what are your hopes for the future of educating young South Africans and how do you think people can be involved in playing a part in supporting our education system? Uh, this will come with complete bias, Jen. Is the first one is to in, is to recognize the role teachers play and, and not from a, a union perspective, not from an IQMS perspective or SACE or anything that is quite a legitimized body of measurement but rather the internal narratives within families and communities of the role the teacher plays as such a significant intervention in, in a student's life, again, positive or negative. And, and I believe that, that, the, that in order to solve so many of the, the buffet of challenges in our education sector begins with, with, with recognizing the impact a school leader or a teacher plays in its community, not just the classroom, not just the, the, the staff meeting at the morning or early night exams, but but we have seen, um, or rather, if you're looking, you'll see that the, the impact of COVID-19 on our education system has revealed or, or shone the light on many fractures and broken aspects of our system. And, 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 and the result of the, the fractures or brokenness of our system is not the teacher's fault. <laughs> and it's, it's, in fact, I'd argue no one's fault, but rather an attitude uh, mistake or perspective that, that needs to be restored. Um, in, in, in simpler words, I guess, is that to solve our, our challenges in, in education, it begins with a recognition that we can solve it, firstly, that the, the loneliness I was talking about, uh, being feeling free a little bit earlier, um, is, is first to accept that this is solvable and to believe that. Because sometimes the activist mindset is easy to point out problems, but not really go in there and build sust sustainable change or sustainable resolutions. And our education system is asking for it. COVID revealed that we that we have been much slower to action than we could have been for the previous years um, since uh, uh, an inverted commas new new South Africa, um, and I believe that's 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 the space I'm taking up in, and it begins with students like like mine on the program, all seventy of them. It begins with really great people that that I work with that pushes this narrative, and it continues with other organisations in the same space of that want to position education and teaching as a viable long terms 
resolution to the, the, the growing problems as a, a generation and society develops and is influenced by, by whatever, TikTok, as, as things go. Um, so, so it's quite a, a layered question, Jen, and, and I don't think I have the answers. And I think that's very important for anyone to accept, you know, that you may know nothing, um, but rather that um, to, to fuel my anger and irritation at the buffet of challenges in education, I push towards a, a vision of, of what am I going to do in my life and, and what am I going to do with the time that I have you know, available to, to push that perspective. And I believe that the Jake Scavell Fellowship is one of other organizations that are doing incredible work in, in shifting the narrative of, of um, you know, the, the very first adult, one of the first adults that young students engage with and, and their, their world is, is, is shaped by an experience of their geography teacher, their maths teacher, their, their whichever. Um, and that's such a responsible, important role to play that admittedly, I really came to understand after leaving the classroom as it goes, um, but with no doubt in mind that I want to return to the classroom after my time at JGF um, because I, I, I'm not looking forward to the marking or the admin, but I really do thrive in those spaces of, of 40, 50 kids and, and allow them to be who they are and guide them towards uh, showing up for themselves. And, and I love it. So you're also doing that in a way through your company For You and Yours, which focuses on queer representation and greeting cards, but you also have expanded the offering around pre-marriage couples counselling and inclusive wedding decor. What sparked the launching of this business and what are some of the things you hope to achieve with it? So I, I guess by now you can tell, Jen, that I tell stories. <laughs> um, and, and a couple of years ago, um, I was very fortunate to, to visit my sister in Sydney, or rather in Australia. Um, and and my, my wife and I walked into a bookstore. It was my job to find out um, what we were going to do that day. And, and I said, let's go to this queer bookstore. Now, in my mind, I saw the exclusive books aisle. You know, there's that one aisle in, in most bookstores for like queer literature and you like stand there. Well, I would stand there like a little bit, you know, feeling quite exposed, um, at least before I came out. And we walked into this bookstore. It was called um, Hares and Hyenas in, in, in a part of, of, of uh, Melbourne. And it was an entire bookstore full of queer literature, children's books, uh, non-binary books, parenting, leather erotica, all of it, all of it that you can imagine. That my, my wife and I, Jackie, stood there and, and our eyes started tearing. I don't cry very easily, so this was quite a, a big moment. Um, and we bought really overpriced beer just so that we could stay there longer and tried not to spend our entire budget on all the books, you know, that, that, that presented themselves to us. Queer women of queer people of color poetry, things you'd never, you know, sort of access in, in, in a mainstream inverted commerce space. And I felt that it would be criminal <laughs> to not bring something like that back to South Africa. And, and I, you know, I, I don't have the patience, I guess, for, for a bookstore, like just to replicate the model. I also, I'm not so sure of its, you know, sustainability. Um, but I thought, let me bring back a piece of this, this passion that I felt for representation. And let me bring it back into a space that I can just begin with, something like wedding cards and greeting cards. And it is my side hustle, of course, you know, with, with a full-time job. So I'm always impatient at its progress. But I find that, that the clients that I serve are so um, grateful, it's not the right word, but deeply, I guess, affirmed by seeing themselves in, in, in the media that they, that they, that they buy for, for themselves or for a, a, a couple in, in, in the case of a wedding. So 
our designers will either, you know, present um, quite a, a simple, you know, Mr. and Mr. And, and happy, happy congratulations on your union or whatever. But also they, they're able to personalize uh, the, the card for based on the couple. So the, the client will send you a picture and they will illustrate or, or design it to, to look literally represent the couple and the love that, that, um, that they're asking for. And, and there's an essence there that, that when you see yourself in media, that you, you can't, it's hard to describe, it's, or rather it's easy to describe as a person of color. It's really hard to acknowledge when, when you fit the, the dominant narrative. And, and I've noticed that particularly with queer people, um, this offering that For You and Yours gives is, is an opportunity just to completely bathe in, in the wonderfulness of who you are and your love. And, and part of my personal philosophies are two commitments. The one is that I commit myself to excellence. And the second one is I commit myself to love. And those are the two driving pillars that, that, that I, I approach everything with. And I, fe I feel For You and Yours captures that quite significantly in being able to, to elevate people's unions and loves or, or their families in ways that, that no one else can really imagine. And, and I believe that this is something that I want to completely continue with and never abandon, although full-time work, you know, as any side hustle, it always gets a little bit knocked. Um, and the vision, I guess, of for you and yours is to take this feeling of, of representation and the fullness of who you are, like Jackie and I felt in that bookstore, um, across Africa. And the politics there, you know, is a bit of an ideal um, a vision, but the idea is at least to build Africa's largest platform of queer illustrators and designers that can then partake in this campaign and movement and of course get paid and and, and receive recognition for for the work that they do i had a little look at the site before we were recording and the cards on there are beautiful they are so so lovely and i i just thought it was such a fantastic space that people could go to and i didn't know about the custom offering so i think people are going to be really excited to hear that so i have three um final questions before we end off the podcast which i'm asking everybody and the first is what is a book that has inspired your feminism or your journey towards excellence and love Initially, when, when, when I heard this question, I was, I was a bit thrown by, by which book. You're asking someone who reads to choose a book. Um, and, you know, once I quietened that, that resistance, I found that The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood was the one that, that was so disturbingly accurate. I mean, you know, that's quite an extreme statement, but there were pockets and elements of it that were so entirely accurate that stirred so much crossness within me that I couldn't watch the, when it became a series, I couldn't watch it. I, I think I watched one episode and I said, oh no, this, I cannot have a picture in my head of, of the feelings that I feel, it's too much. And the, the content of that book, at least how she portrays it, um, really invites a, 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 a lens of curiosity onto your own life in a way that is, is, is quite um, intimate and, and, I, I, you know, shared the, the book with a male friend and, and he was in, in thrown. He had so many questions like, is this what? It must be fiction. It can't be real. And then when we started to unpack a little bit of the historical relevance of, of the text, he was just as angry as I was. And then again, I guess that was one of the starts of, of my journey to being comfortable with being cross and impatient and angry at, at, at things that just don't make sense. Or rather in my book, they, they shouldn't make sense as they are. The book raises such good questions around what we take to be normal and how many people are complicit in upholding systems of power. But I mean, I've watched all of the series. It is phenomenal. 
it's hard going though like you have to take a little time out to process but I also read the follow-up came out last year the testaments which had a few different perspectives um, and if you haven't read that it is really really interesting to go back to those characters um, and w- what was also interesting was Margaret Atwood said she didn't put anything in those books that hadn't already happened in the in the world to women with fiction I think it does allow you to ask questions more intimately and to be more honest with yourself than non-fiction sometimes because it feels like a bit of a softer introduction to some hard topic the second to last question that I have is do you have a quote that has inspired you or that you live by I do and I think I've said it a few times in different ways today it's simply put uh, if it keeps you kind and makes you cross then you must do something about it beautiful and the final bit of our podcast is a question of advice do you have any advice for other feminists on their journey echoing um, some of the things I've said today, I'd, I'd want to be, you know, rock that boat and say, no, I don't have any advice. <laughs> um, but that's that's not true. Um, I do have advice. And, and, and I'm, you can quote me on this, which is you need to learn the rules of anything so that you can break them or change them. Uh, there is a level of uh, submission is the wrong word or compliance is too bureaucratic, but there is a level of power that you gain once you've learned the edge of the, the, the inside, you know, of, of what it is you're trying to change. And that learning doesn't have to be an act of violence, but it, it can be a process of um, recognizing and clarifying where it is that you want to go to, go forward. So my advice to younger feminists is it's a buffet. There are loads of challenges and things that are wrong in the world, and that's the first step to acknowledge. Um, and the second step then is to understand your, your area of interest as much as you want to, whether it's a personal experience or someone else's that you are, are, are feeling quite passionate about. Um, but to really affect change is to is to understand the system or the problem intimately before you can um, before you can redress it and, and move towards a resolution. Sure. Thank you so much, Carla, for taking the time to talk with me today and for coming on the podcast. And thank you more for the work that you're doing to make a more hopeful and brighter and honest future for everyone. I feel very inspired and so happy to have talked with you today. Thank you, Jen. This was very cool. I enjoyed it. Thanks. Visit Carla's website for you and yours at for you and yours.co.za. Thanks so much for tuning into this week's episode of Living While Feminist with me, Jen Thorpe. Please do tune in next week to hear more from feminists about their lives and experiences. Take care of yourselves. <laughs>